You're listening to No Borders Media. In this audio dispatch, we learn about the organizing and support of Abdul Abdi, a former child refugee, survivor of the foster care system, and prisoner. In July, Abdi was finally allowed to stay in Canada despite several deportation attempts by the Canadian government. Abdi's case exposes multiple injustices of systems of control in the Canadian state, including the immigration system, the so-called child protection system, as well as the criminal justice and prison system. The successful mobilizing to keep Abdi in Canada is also an inspiring example of multifaceted cross-city intersectional organizing, as well as the power of Black Grassroots Canada. For an insider view of the support and organizing for Abdul Abdi, No Borders Media speaks with Elle Jones, a poet and community activist based in Halifax. This interview was recorded on August 26, 2018 by Jaggi Singh for No Borders Media. I'm on the line with Elle Jones. Elle is a poet and an activist based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Elle has been active on many issues, but particularly on prison justice issues for the last little while. Elle, uh, welcome to No Borders Media. Hi, thank you for having me. Elle, I wanted to talk about a case that is both inspiring and infuriating. It's inspiring because of the resilience of the the man, the young man in question, Abdul Abdi, and his family and the support around him, and the fact that now he can stay in Canada. But it's infuriating, and that that word doesn't do justice to the fundamental rooted injustices that Abdul Abdi and people close to him had to deal with. So tell our listeners who Abdul Abdi is. As of mid-July, we know that he he can now stay in Canada, but that wasn't something that was evident uh, just uh, just a few months ago. So t- talk to us about who Abdul Abdi was and is. So Abdul Abdi um, came as a refugee to Canada. They, him, his sister, and his two aunts came. They were born in a refugee camp in Saudi Arabia. Um, his parents had died, and they came as government-sponsored refugees to Nova Scotia. Um, and within a very short time after coming, he was six when he came, him and his sister were taken into permanent care and made crown wards. Um, Abdul was moved to 31 homes uh, during his youth. That includes group homes, um, juvenile detention, different facilities. Um, There's one home, for example, that his sister was abused and they removed her from the home but left him there. Um, And, of course, like many youth that are in care, especially uh, black youth and especially uh, refugee or immigrant youth, he became criminalized and then um, ended up crossing over into the adult criminal justice system. And because nobody got a citizenship for him, he was eligible for deportation, even though, of course, he had been in the country from age six. And what made it worse was that at various points, his aunt had attempted, when she applied for citizenship, she had put his name and Fatuma's name, his sister, on her application. And they told her that that wasn't allowed because she wasn't a legal guardian because they were crown wards. So they removed their names. So she got citizenship and they didn't, um, and the state just never sought citizenship for them. And in fact, there is no policy in Nova Scotia um, governing getting citizenship for child refugees who are in care. This um, this case around Abdul Abdi brings together so many inju- issues that are fundamentally unjust: the refugee and immigration determination system, of course, the foster care system, the prison complex which which pushes precarious people into prisons into the prison system racism 
and neglect. So can you can you talk about that that constellation of issues that that came together on Abdul Abdi's case? So Abdul Abdi's case, the advocacy that took place there um, came from grassroots Black Canada, and it was really a national issue where I think Black people really saw that what had happened to this child, so this child that was taken into care and completely neglected. Um, as his lawyer says, he was denied the right to even have rights, which is citizenship. And, of course, these children aren't seen as real Canadians or, you know, worthy of anything at the same time. Of course, he had spent time in the juvenile justice system. He only was able to achieve a grade 6 education. So these are all failings that we can see that all these red flags and all these needs are up, and he simply wasn't taken care of. So he's taken into care to protect him, but nothing is done. And one of the things that unfolds, particularly in the court case, is that um, you get this particular white supremacy where, at the one hand, they're the experts and they can remove a black kid from care because they can care better for a kid than his own family, but how could they possibly know about citizenship, right? So at all points, you sort of see this, this idea of they both have the authority to do all these things, so they have the authority to support him, but then argue that they couldn't possibly know anything about human rights when they're making that determination. So literally, the Crown is arguing... Um, oh, you know, well, the, the, the border officers and the lawyer, how are they supposed to take this stuff into account? Yet they have the full authority to create this determination. And so you see this all along, right, that this is one of the hallmarks of white supremacy, that white supremacy both makes a claim to innocence when convenient, but also, of course, a claim to authority, that this system is what's working, it's fair, it's rules-based, as Trudeau told Fatuma, she stood in front of him in early January and asked him, you know, would you deport your own child? He was to- she was told that, you know, the system's fair, but of course, it's not a system that anybody would apply to any of their own children, but for black children, this is what we have. Um, so, yeah, just when you look at education, at the juvenile justice system, at the criminal system, and then, of course, the immigration system, how it intersects all of that, we can just see how this was a clear case of anti-black racism working in Canada. And I think this was what really mobilized black people. So in early January, when he was released from custody but taken back into custody right away and taken into solitary confinement in a number of different immigration detention situations, that was where you really saw, particularly across Twitter at that point, an uprising from black candidates that recognized this injustice. And that was really what sort of pushed this case into the public consciousness, even though there had been a lot of advocacy before that point, um, particularly in December when Desmond Cole and I challenged the Minister of Immigration at the National Black Summit about this case. Um, But it was really at that point, I think, when people in Black Canada became aware, and then black journalists started picking up the story, and then eventually it made national news and and became public in ways that other cases haven't really been able to. So, of course, this happens all the time. I can think of at least five cases in Nova Scotia that I know of of children that were taken into care. I had even done um, advocacy a couple of years before that, with an English woman, Fliss Kramen, who had been in the same situation where she had been taken into foster care, did not get citizenship, um, and ended up, when she had been taken back into immigration detention after she served her sentence, shackled to her bed in the hospital as she was critically ill. So she had a perforation of her stomach and um, was dying, and they chained her to her bed. And we had done advocacy around that, which is actually, by the way, where I met Ashley Smith's family uh, during that advocacy. So it's nothing new, but... Um, I think it was particularly, in this case, the mobilization by Black Canada that pushed it from the shadows into something that then became national news. Ellie, you referred to grassroots Black Canada, and I know there's been references um, ever since Black Lives Matter to Black Twitter and, and the fact that 
black folks have gotten together to organize using social media. But I like that term, grassroots black Canada, because it speaks to the organizing that happens beyond social media. And you've already alluded to or spoken about how you and Desmond Cole, who is um, a well-known activist in Toronto, came together to, uh, to expose this when you intervened with Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, but speak more about uh, grassroots Black Canada and grassroots Black organizing, its potential to expose these injustices and to transform them into something that speaks to the dignity of everyone, but particularly uh, Afro-Canadians and African-Americans. I think the first thing to understand is that we've always been doing this work, and we're doing it long before what I have been calling the woke industrial complex arose, right? So um, right now there's a kind of cachet in activism, um, you know, and particularly around Twitter activism or T-shirt activism or whatever it is. And I'm not necessarily denigrating that. In Abdul's case, uh, Twitter was really important. It was a really important tool just for pushing things. But um, long before activism was also, you know, getting weekends at Yale or whatever, obviously black communities have been doing this work and the slow and painful work on the ground every day. So if you look at Abdul, um, Abdul told me once, you know, he knew me before I knew him because he used to listen to the radio show that we do on CKDU 88.1, so he was hearing my voice. And then with the prison work I do, um, that we do with BPH, Black Power Hour, um, when he made contact with me all those years later, he knew that he could trust me, he had already heard my name inside. So those are the kind of uh, relationships that we're, we're building in these communities. And I think that's a really important piece of organizing, that it is relational and it takes place over years. You can't just step in at the last moment and do advocacy in a way that's going to have a meaningful change. And so um, these kind of survival relationships we've had in our communities that we've built through the radical love we have for each other, through having to support each other, um, through being pushed out of other spaces, becomes these networks that we then are able to rely on and build. Um, so, I, I mean, I always talk about this, but black women are always on the cutting edge of activism because this is just our lives. This is just what we have to do. We have to inhabit so many roles. Um, in the Abdul case, you know, we had to learn things. You just have to learn immigration law. <laughs> like, the most, you know, such a complex area of law, and you just have to understand it because you're not going to be able to walk into those rooms with ministers and, and sound like somebody they need to take seriously if you haven't done your homework. So, you know, we constantly are doing that homework and, and working on these different levels. Like, you have to be a journalist, and you have to be an advocate, and you have to be a person that brings diapers to the house, and you have to be a person that's a social worker, and you have to be, um, you know, a bus driver, whatever it is that you need to do. You, you just have to do those things. And I think that um, where black women in particular and black queer people have been um, so so solid and have had this ability to do this organizing is just because we have learned how to work on all these levels. So Abdul wasn't just me. Um, Idil, um, she was amazing. I mean, Idil did all of stuff like getting bus passes when Abdul was brought to Toronto. Um, I, I, I can't even say what Idil did. It was everything, you know, setting up a medical appointment to the jail. So Idil Abdullahi, um, she was one of the very, very active people that just took on such a role, and Idil teaches social work at Ryerson. She's a former social worker, so she knows the system and uses it in radical ways. So that knowledge of the system meant that she was able to negotiate all these places. And I don't want to speak too much about what Idil had to do because um, I don't know. I don't. I, she should speak for herself, but I can say from my perspective that um, you know that that Idil had that knowledge and knew the system meant that Idil could just do everything and set everything up, and she was just constant. Um, you know, having people that were journalists that were also willing 
to be journalists and to, to come and, and do the work speaking to people and understanding the situation. And then uh, the money that people donated, uh, the kind of daily support. I mean, there was so much that went into it. And then you know, people constantly tweeting, constantly writing, constantly holding people to account. Black students that did an action when Ahmed Hussein, who's the Minister of Immigration, held a town hall in Halifax, and they came and did an action. So there was just really constant, constant pushing and attention. Um, and we really did have to create a machine that has already existed, but that we mobilized to do 24-7. Um, Black Lives Matter did a National Day of Action they pulled together in, in really 24 hours that they spearheaded, and that was in five cities. So going to Abu Hussein's office, going to um, like the department here, going in Toronto to, um, you know, they went to Abu Hussein's office in Toronto, they went to Ralph Goodale's office. So, you know, there was a number of, of actions simultaneously happening to, to prove that this was a national issue. So there was just so much that went on. Um, we were on the phone, you know, 18 to 20 hours a day during January, um, especially when we didn't know when Abdul was, just organizing things and setting things up. And it has to be constant like that. We have to put that work in. And I think that's always really important to emphasize, especially particularly for the younger generation, that when they're asking, you know, how do they get into activism or what do they do, um, there's a very visible layer of activism that's like the social media activism and the what I said, like the woke industrial complex, or that kind of cool level of activism that's like, what's in the media and what's visible, and that's 5%, not even, of, of what's happening. You know, 95 plus percent of what's happening has to be that work on the ground every day with communities. It has to be with the knowledge that, you know, as I'm talking to you about this, uh, every piece of advocacy that's done is being done because somebody's rights are being violated, and they are suffering, and they are at the center of that, and we have to be building around them. It's not about, you know, us or our organizations or whatever it is. Um, we pull on those things to do the work, but the work has to be centered just daily in taking the calls and listening to what's happening and, you know, filling the canteen if you're doing prison work and making sure that people have money to pay for their groceries. You know, that's really where the work is. And, and that was really activated during Abdul's case, but um, in so many other areas as well. Al, you've, you've addressed really well and in great detail the the support networks that go into something like um, stopping a deportation and bringing justice or you know, a, a certain level of justice to Abdul Abdi in this situation. Um, there are activists and, as you said, grassroots Black Canada in multi multiple cities, people doing things behind the scenes that are invisible and people doing things that are visible and more frontline. Um, the various professionals that need to be involved as well, and I know that Abdi had a, had a very competent lawyer. But there are also people who become sort of activists of circumstance and in this case, it seems to me, and you can add to this, um, the family, particularly Abdi's sister and aunt, who who themselves became became activists to to uh, to you know to fight and struggle for justice for their uh, for their brother or for their nephew. So, can you speak to the role of of the family members, these these what I call activists of circumstance? Yeah, and I think as well that those of us who are maybe the visible activists. Um, one, it obviously is a classist thing, you know, it tends to be academics and professionals, which is obviously an unfortunate point of access. But two, obviously because we run less risk. So the reason why you hear me talking about prison isn't because the people in prison can tell you everything and more. They're the experts. It's because they are the ones at risk. So those of us that are not at risk have to take on those positions. But uh, we should always remember that just because somebody is a forward-facing voice or somebody's on the news does not mean that that person is the person doing all the work or only doing the work or the most affected or the person, um, you know, that's sacrificing the most. So 
in the terms of Fatuma, for example, his sister who uh, long before I was involved, obviously was always advocating for her brother. She herself doesn't have citizenship, and she advocated. She had gone to media quite early and managed to get a couple of stories. She was the one that found Ben Perryman, who was just an angel of a lawyer, um, you know, the rare kind of lawyer that was completely dedicated, had 100% faith that they were going to win in court when I think most other people doubted it, um, completely was willing to work with the activism and, and respected that. It wasn't something that he saw people stepping on his toes. Like ben Perryman was just a dream um, in this case. And, of course, the brilliant case he did in court that a lot of people, I think, were quite skeptical that it was going to be successful and, and won this victory in court that leads to Ralph Goodale like, tweeting, okay, I guess, you know, I guess we'll stop this deportation. But um, Fatuma found him and was paying him before, before he started working pro bono. So he very quickly worked for free for most of the case. But very initially when Fatuma made contact, you know, she was offering her money to that. Um, so, like, that idea of this sister that really just refused to, to let her brother be deported and said, anything you need. So when I met Fatuma was actually when we were going to this town hall that Trudeau um, was having in Halifax. So Abdul gets released from jail very early in January and taken into immigration custody. And at that point, he's in solitary confinement. He's being moved from institution to institution. Even Ben Perryman can't find him or talk to him. There's very little contact. So it was a very, very stressful time where, you know, there's just this desperate kind of push to try and find him and get him out. And at, right in the middle of this, Trudeau sort of announces the last minute, sort of announced on, like, Friday that there's going to be a town hall. It was on the Monday or Tuesday. And we were like, well, we have to do something there. We cannot let Trudeau come and not challenge it. Um, and so I reached out to Fatuma and asked her, you know, do you want to come and do this? She was very pregnant at the time in a high-risk pregnancy and came out. This is in the winter. Initially, we were going to stand outside and do this protest, which happened. But Fatuma said, I need to go in. And I, I, if Trudeau was here, I need to stand there. And so we hadn't prepared to go in. We thought we would just be outside because you we were trying to sort of – it was a strategic move. And this is obviously when you're doing actions, there's a lot of strategy involved. So we knew that if we called this protest, the news would have to cover it. And they did ask Trudeau about it before the town hall. And that's obviously one of the goals of when, when you're doing something is that once it becomes news, then people said to Trudeau, oh, there's a protest about Abdul. What do you know about that? So he was on record on tape speaking about it. So we already had, you know, got this kind of attention to it. But Fatuma didn't think that was enough. You know, she, she was like, I'll do anything for my brother. So went inside the town hall and managed to get a question to Trudeau and stood right there and asked him, you know, would you deport your own children? Why are you doing this to my brother? Um, and Trudeau eventually does essentially say that the province failed Abdul. So even though he says a lot of nonsense about, you know, the immigration system is fair, it's rules-based, he does acknowledge that Abdul was failed, which is actually a very important acknowledgement that comes into the human rights case that then becomes very important in court in talking about Abdul's charter rights. So Fatuma is a hero. I mean, to stand up there and to do that in front of the prime minister, this isn't someone who's a professional activist or someone who does media, but she was just... Um, so dedicated to her brother, and she's just a brilliant, brilliant woman. Um, so that's just an example of the kind of stuff, the kind of power that people have, and that comes out of communities and out of people that are always constantly disregarded. So, I mean, that's why it's difficult to talk about activism, because it becomes such a thing that, you know, this figurehead is this person and is that person, and the Fatumas of the world, who are the ones with all the courage, um, I never seen that way, you know. Like Fatuma should be on a Black History Month poster, you know. In January, Fatuma standing, you know, a hundred feet from Trudeau and asking him, "Would you deport your own son?" And then in like February, Trudeau's acknowledging the decade for the UN decade for people of African descent three years late, and 
you know, everybody's standing around him, you know, but uh, it was Fatuma that challenged him about anti-blackness. You know, that was a, such a significant moment. So I can't say enough about her and just how dedicated she was and put aside all her own needs. And she does not have citizenship. So she is at risk herself, um, yet showed that tremendous courage and love. And you just see that every, every day, like no matter what we're working on. And so I always think it, it always puts you in a kind of, yeah, it, it, it is a, and we have to keep acknowledging this position that when you're listening to me talking, whether it's about prison or Abdul or whatever, that is, I'm talking because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are living through these things. And, you know, they give you permission to speak for them, but we are never speaking for them. You know, they are the ones that are, are at risk and they are the ones living their lives with courage and they are the heroes of all of these movements. Al, um, one of the... One of the links in, in this case that has been alluded to already is uh, the injustice of prison. And the first, one of the first calls you got about Abdul Abdi's case was from a, a man named Jordan Ward, who was Abdul Abdi's cellmate. But he's also the nephew of Ashley Smith. And the Ashley Smith case, for people who aren't familiar, is an example of prison system and the, f- and the foster care system completely abandoning someone. Ashley Smith died in prison by suffocation. She killed herself in 2007, although a coroner later ruled it as, as a homicide because of how she was failed. And the fact that somebody who was close to Ashley Smith, her nephew, who, uh, who gave you a call, really brings all these issues together. So can you, can you talk about that, the fact that there is this connection between the Ashley Smith case and the Abdul Abdi case? So I mentioned already when first Kramen was facing deportation, was shackled to her bed, um, we had called a protest against that. And I suppose this might show sometimes our strategic missteps. <laughs> um, so we called the protest and said, you know, there's this woman shackled in the hospital. Um, she's critically ill. And a lot of people were obviously horrified and disgusted by this. So people have said, oh, you know, they're going to come. And we were holding it, like, outside the hospital, which isn't right downtown. It's Dartmouth General. So it's a bit far for people if they don't live in that area. Um, and then at noon, the day of the protest, the Department of Justice strategically unshackles her, you know, orders her unshackled. Uh, and claimed, of course, that they had no idea that they were shackling people. But, of course, they were all the time. And lots of women said they had been shackled on their pregnant, like prenatal appointments, even while giving birth and stuff. Um, so the result of this is a lot of people like, good, problem solved. But, of course, Bliss was still being deported. So we felt we needed to go ahead with this protest. But, of course, it's now been announced that, oh, Bliss has been shackled. So a lot of people felt, well, it was no longer this, this crisis. So now I'm standing outside the hospital, and it's, you know, like five minutes ago, and it's basically me standing there, and Ashley Smith's family comes, um, and Coralie, who had been such an amazing advocate for Ashley, it took seven years to get any sort of justice for Ashley. Um, tapes had gone missing, of course, testimonies, were, there were lies. Um, you know, the whole system obviously was covering up. There just had been no justice, and Coralie, Ashley's mother, just had to keep fighting and keep fighting, it, and years and years and years of going through that to get this into court. Um, so when she had heard about Fliss, she had called me and said, what can I do? Like, Ashley was also, you know, shackled and taped to airplanes and held in solitary, and she, and she just wanted to come. So her and her daughter Donna showed up, and it was basically us standing there. And I remember saying to Coralie, you know, that, oh, God, I hope more people come. Like, it's going to be really embarrassing, you know, if it's just three of us and there's all this media here. And Coralie turned to me and said, you know, Elle, there's three people here, and that's three more than most women in prison have. And that's just always, always stuck with me, you know, because that's what, it, that, that just brings it down to why you do these things. You know, it's about supporting the person. And to this day, Fliss will talk about how just people coming to the hospital that didn't know her, you know, the so people that had nothing invested in her. And she said, you know, that people came and fought for me and didn't just see me as a drug addict and a criminal. You know, that meant so much to me. 
So that I always think about that. That's that what Coralie said to me has just stuck with me. So um, moving forward, um, when Abdul is in prison and getting you know these notifications about deportation, and of course at first doesn't even have representation. He's fielding these you know he has to write these letters. He doesn't even have a lawyer. Um, and this is how unjust the system is, right? That uh, Harper creates this very uh, like closed system around immigration. So you're asked to make these submissions, he makes it, and it's like one officer making the decision, and there's no representation, and, and just the injustice of that process would be a whole other show. Um, and Jordan just was seeing this and was just so brokenhearted for Abdul and so moved by what Abdul was going through, and he reached out and said, you know, you have to be able to do something for him. Like, what can you do? And so it was him giving up those phone calls of Abdul. I wasn't allowed onto his PIN number. You know, they wouldn't let him call me. Uh, so it was Jordan giving up calls and, and his family facilitating that and, and making sure that Abdul had contact. And that was when I was first talking to Abdul. So it was really Jordan that alerted me uh, to the idea that something had to be done here. And then I spoke to Abdul and, you know, made a promise to Abdul that I couldn't stop him from being deported. That's not in my power, but that we would fight our hardest and that we would do everything we could and we weren't just going to let him step onto a plane without trying everything we could. So it was really, you can see how all of these different circles of injustice, so what happened to Fliss, and Fliss has said that the most traumatic thing and the thing that she's still recovering from is that deportation um, threat, that that was the most traumatic thing that she'd been seen. Even hearing the word deportation is triggering to her to this day because of, of what happened. Um, so there's that, which shows you that these are systemic issues. It wasn't just Abdul's case, which was sort of treated as though it were unique, but there had been this case already. Um, Ashley Smith's family obviously well knew that the in injustice that happens in the Canadian prison system. And, of course, one of the things they went through, was, as many families do, you assume that things are going to be just and that people are telling you the truth. And, of course, Ashley would call and didn't want to distress them and would tell them she was all right, and they had no idea what was going on because deliberately so you are lied to and not given information. So they had to go on through this journey with the system, really understanding the depths of injustice when they had to fight all those years to just get things like tapes and realize how like, the staff was covering up, that the government was covering up. And so they just ingrained in their bones knew how unjust this country was. So, of course, when they saw what was happening to Abdul, um, they could recognize that, and Jordan could recognize that, and knew that you know there, there needed to be mobilization. So um, a lot of things came together. Of course, one reason why Jordan sort of thought I could do something was because I would already done some wrongful conviction cases of people that he knew so getting publicity for that and connecting people with lawyers so again it's that sort of work that goes on every day and then all those stories you hear and all the work you do or you know that then makes somebody think that they might be able to give you a call and they might be able to trust that you can do something there so um, there's so many different pieces that went into just that one phone call. Elle it's it's clear that the in terms of prisons, in terms of the deportation machine, in terms of foster care, in terms of government neglect, there are a lot of injustices to talk about. But this this seems to be embedded in anti-black racism, and and that's a term that people might not be familiar with. Talk about how how these injustices are embedded in anti-black racism, and what and what that means. So anti-black racism recognizes the specific axis of racism that African descended people face. So racism as a blanket term, obviously everybody who is not white faces that, but there's particular ways that black people face racism um, due to the history of enslavement, um, due to the kind of axis of oppression on skin shade, um, the way that black is seen as an opposition to white as sort of the fundamental other um, 
often, of course, we know that anti-black racism becomes embedded in other communities. So um, people who immigrate to Canada, for example, absorb anti-black racism, and that also anti-indigenous racism, right? Um, but you often see anti-black racism even within other groups. And of course, um, anti-African racism in terms of even within black communities, so towards people with darker skin. So it, it's a really fundamental, um, important thing to understand that just saying racism does not capture how black people specifically move and live in the society, why black people are the victims of police shootings, why black people are vulnerable to incarceration, why black communities are seen in certain ways. And obviously a lot of this um, returns to enslavement and the ideas of black people and blackness has arisen from that. 13th, for example, deals with this very well, right, that how blackness and criminality become intertwined. Right, so at the end of slavery, as a mechanism of social control, blackness becomes associated with criminality, and this is why, you know, we can trace that to police shootings and mass incarceration. Um, the images of, so even stuff like um, how black activism is seen and viewed, which is always as this disruptive, like violent thing, you know, comes partly through the images of, for example, black women as angry black women, this dehumanizing image um, that we've always been seen as animals and beasts, which was allowed to enslave us, you know, that we're not allowed to have feelings, we're not allowed to be vulnerable, that plays into the court. So, you know, like recently, I and on a wrongful conviction case where somebody confessed on the stand, yet this black man, Randy Riley, was convicted of second-degree murder, which did not fit any of the facts of the case. There was no nothing placed in the court that he did second-degree murder. It was a challenge on first. Um, they couldn't convict him at first, so they just convicted second, an all-white jury. Um, and the media kept writing in that case, for example, that he was staring at the witnesses, staring, he's staring, you know? So I asked the question, what is the difference between staring and looking? And of course, the difference is that staring has menace. I bring this up to say that um, that's an example of how anti-black racism in this very subtle way, but very important way, inflects stuff like how we report on the courts, right? So a black suspect is staring, so therefore he's guilty, because he would only be staring at the witnesses if he's trying to intimidate them, right? Um, so this kind of idea that you can't even have a look on your face when you're black and go into court. Um, you know, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. So in Abdul's case, we know that black children, for example, are not seen as children. Um, and you see that in the way that black children are placed into the youth justice system, in the way that uh, teachers are reported to see black children as up to four years older than their actual ages, which, of course, means that expectations are placed upon them. So this is where you see cases of, like, black kids being, like, handcuffed in school when they're age five. Um, you know, black children aren't seen as innocent. They're not seen as children. So they're not seen as worthy of protection or worthy of being vulnerable. Um, black families aren't seen as functional, right? So black mothers are always judged as lesser mothers. So things that with a white mother would be offered support or simply just wouldn't be an issue with a black mother, then it becomes we need to take these children away for their good. In other words, they need to be removed from blackness and placed into whiteness. Um, so we see that in the way the foster care system works and how black children are taken overwhelmingly into care and how black families are overwhelmingly seen as dysfunctional. Um, we see it, uh, again, in the juvenile justice system where black children are sentenced for things that white children would be given therapy for. And then, of course, in the criminal justice system where a lot of people believe in Canada that over-incarceration of black people is, is, is just an American phenomenon and that anti-black racism only exists in America and black people only exist in America. So there's a kind of erasure of blackness that takes place all the time in Canada where black people are seen not to exist here, so therefore racism isn't a problem. Uh, Robin Maynard talks about this really well in her book, Policing Black Lives, and one of the things she talks about is historically, literally Canada, by policy, is like, we won't have problems with racism in the States, we just won't let them in. So, you know, this is actually policy around immigration, that, that Canada won't be racist because we won't have to contend with black people. So this stuff is just, 
embedded in all our systems. In the immigration system, it's not a coincidence that Abdul is Somali and that he's seen in particular ways because of that. So allegations about gang membership and stuff that come up because you're Somali. So the cross of being both Somali and African Nova Scotian, like being an African Nova Scotia, two communities that are incredibly stigmatized around crime, that obviously intersects for Abdul in the way that he is seen as dangerous and as a public danger. Um, the way that he doesn't receive representation, so, you know, that his lawyer doesn't even argue for him, knowing that he, he would be vulnerable to deportation. You know, all of these things just play into this. So um, people really believe that this isn't an issue in Canada, right? That that's something that happens in the States. Slavery happened in the States. The Civil Rights Movement happened in the States, and we just aren't like that. And the reality is that we are like that. You see many, many deaths in immigration custody, almost overwhelmingly people that are black, like Jamaican, Haitian, uh, from African countries. Um, we know that, for example, the differential treatment of refugees and, and different migrants based on origin. So, for example, the treatment of the Haitians right now at the Quebec border and a different treatment between them and government-sponsored refugees from other countries, the way that Somali refugees were treated when they came to this country and not given the kind of resources. And I'm not trying to play off refugee groups against each other, because this certainly isn't a problem within the refugee group. It's about government policy. But the kind of support that Syrians received, of course, versus like what Somalis received in Toronto overwhelmingly, that then lead to these cycles of poverty and then gets that community criminalized when it really goes back to the government completely not supporting that community um, when they they came to Canada in the first place. So, you know, you can just go on and on about all these mechanisms, and yet, of course, people believe that it doesn't happen in Canada, which is one of these huge battles that the UN has to fight. Um, and even in the coverage of Abdul Abdi, uh, when CBC covers it, they leave out the black advocacy on the case completely. So when they cover the story, they don't ever say that, you know, black people, black lives matter, black advocates, they don't mention that. Um, and then they talk about, you know, human rights advocates and talk about white, white lawyers and white law students. And that really shows you something, right, that we're protesters, we're disruptors. So they'll write all kinds of articles about should black lives matter of blocks of parade, you know, are black people taking it too far? And then as we're engaged in these battles, we're not advocates. White lawyers are advocates and human rights advocates, right? And, of course, the point of that is when they erase us from the story, they erase the idea that there was ever any anti-black racism to start with, they erase the idea that it's systemic. It becomes just something that fell through the cracks that we can fix. Um, there's a reason that every civil rights movie, for example, is set in a courtroom, and it's the idea, you know, Amistad, like Mississippi burning, you know, you can just point out, to kill a mockingbird, whatever it is. And, of course, that's the myth of the white system, but sure, we have these problems, but we have this, the mechanism to correct it. So we don't need to overthrow a white supremacist system. The system fixes itself. It's an enlightenment system, right? Um, and so you, you saw this idea that, you know, like the, the legal piece is like, really important to CBC because that's, and, and this is to, to, again, like, I love Ben, so that's not to at all diminish Ben, but, you know, this idea of, like, oh, they can understand the story that a white lawyer comes to save a black person. They cannot understand a story where black people identify anti-black racism and identify their brother, and through common love and understanding that Abdul is us, we fight to our last breath to make sure our brother is not deported. That is not a narrative that CBC could tell. So even the way that these narratives made it into sort of national news was a very anti-black narrative um, that erased how anti-black racism was generating everything in this case, and it became um, in these particular ways that, uh, yeah, that just again like phrase, you know, black people are just the screamers on the sidelines and disruptors, and we're not actually serious advocates, and none of this has to do with anti-blackness. So um, this is something that we're constantly, constantly, constantly pushing against, like our own erasure, even in our own liberation movement. So. 
Hegel says this way back, you know, in, in um, the philosophy of history, that Africans have no concept of freedom. And that has just been the whole approach to African people throughout history, that even as we've had the only successful slave rebellion in history in Haiti, which recently just passed the anniversary of that, you know, all these liberation movements, how many slaves liberated themselves. Of course, there would have been no slave catchers going into the North, prompting a dispute over state laws if slaves hadn't been liberating themselves, as enslaved people hadn't been doing that. Yet we are always erased from narratives of our own liberation, and, and that continues today. So that's one reason why we have to not only identify anti-blackness, but consistently identify what it is that black people are doing to liberate ourselves through our own traditions, through our own history, through our own mechanisms, through our own understanding. L. Jones, who's been a support person along with many other people, part of Grassroots Black Canada that, that organized to support Abdul Abdi. Thank you for speaking with us on No Borders, uh, no Borders Media. Thank you, Jackie. It's a pleasure. You are listening to No Borders Media Interview with L. Jones, a poet and community activist based in Halifax, about Black Grassroots Canada and the resistance of the deportation of Abdul Abdi. No Borders Media, based in Toronto and Montreal, is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of Indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of colour, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. Stay in touch. Send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months.